<laughs> oh, it's like the Zoom version of Siri. Yeah. Recording in progress. It doesn't sound at all, you know, like how how's life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you all for inviting me into your show. Um, oh, our pleasure. Yeah, man. We're really happy that you could make the time, find the time. Yeah. Yeah. Which limited time I have single dadding, working so many jobs. Um, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. You have your community acupuncture clinic and you work at Pitt. Are there more um, jobs? Well, uh, let's rephrase this. Um, I don't have a community acupuncture clinic anymore okay. um, because of COVID. That makes sense. Um, I primarily teach at Pitt. Um, I'm finishing up my monograph. It's called When White People Took Our Medicine. Um, I know. Cool. Yeah. Um, and then um, writing a few academic journal articles um, based on like acupuncture and Chinese medicine um, in the United States, but also um, I'm working on this huge project that um, has been like almost a decade in the making called countercultural orientalism. Ooh. So um, that's been like this kind of wave, you know, the sixties and seventies of finding mm-hmm. a quote unquote enlightenment in the East, another quote unquote, right. Um, and basically one of my premises is that um, if it wasn't for, cheap airfare, none of this would have occurred. So there's that like science technology studies angle to it. Mm -hmm. Um, But mostly what's important about that is the angle of um, that it's centered around practice rather than this kind of like epistemological kind of uh, aspect. So it's a very practice um, driven movement that occurred um, mostly in the 16th and 70s, but romanticized during the 50s, during the beat generation. Um, and there's this like always this kind of dialectical paradox of, of what the beats in themselves being these kind of like explorers of like Eastern thought. And I'm gonna do a lot of quotes when I say Eastern, we can get into that. But, um, you know, while driving like near internment camps. So like following the works of Suzuki while like actively driving near these internment camps that were erected just like 10 years prior right so there's like huge cultural disconnect but that disconnects still persists today right so that's kind of the big investigation that i'm analyzing well and i mean not to go too far back on this one but i mean it's happening within the context of you know the United States, I'll air quote that too, um, of America, which gets like triple air quotes, right? And I mean, lately, <laughs> past couple of years, I've thought about the constitution a lot. Yeah. And I don't know if when we talked to Brent, I said this on or off tape, but you know, um, and uh, this will probably not really provoke too many of our listeners, but it certainly it could for many people be a provocative statement, but I really dig what Mark Charles said when he said that, you know, like people want to frame it as like somehow the United States is not functioning as it was supposed to because people don't have equity and equality. But in point of fact, if you look at the Constitution, it's exactly functioning the way that it was written yeah. to be, right? And yeah. so there's this um, 
the thing, one of the things that I'm hearing and why I'm bringing this up as you're talking about the beats, right, is that dissonance when they're like pursuing this kind of idealized uh, relationship to some kind of epistemic frame yeah. at the same time that on earth they're driving by an internment camp. I feel like yeah. this is kind of the inherent paradoxical dialectic of this country from its inception, sure. right? It's like, sure. so, I mean, just yeah. noteworthy. Yeah, and that like really plays itself out within our profession, you know, very much so. And, um, and yeah, like, so one of the things I definitely want to preface before like getting heavy into this is that you all know I'm an anthropologist, right? So like, um, I ask questions. So this is not this like one way street where you just like barrage questions to me because I'm generally interested in what y'all think too, you know, um, especially y'all's positions and stuff, you know. Um, and uh, Taryn and I, we went through a really weird school um a very interesting school that um i remember the founder of the school president whatever he was um uh sean marshall was saying that i will teach you everything to know about chinese medicine in the first day and like or first week and i didn't get what he was saying and then now in retrospect he did he taught me everything that there is to know in fact, in like regards to the structures, the dynamics, how everything is played out, how like he couldn't even practice acupuncture um, with, you know, he was a unlicensed acupuncturist, right? So he was on the margins, um, even though he was one of Wing Bengni's students, right? Um, and that kind of plays into the structures of power within the profession, right? That was kind of illuminated for me as like one of the main, like uh, kind of the guts of what the medicine is. And I should really differentiate between the medicine and the profession, right? Because medicine in itself, heterogeneous, you know, um, my ancestors brought it with us, you know, throughout their whole diaspora. Um, well, not just my ancestors, my mom and dad, right? Um, but how my story and how the medicine is um, embedded into our identity, right? Not just that like we own it, but what does ownership mean? Ownership has this like commodified thing. But for me, you know, like um, this medicine is embedded into us. So much so that I went to like a hot pot the other day. Um, and I found that they have one selection of a hot pot broth called Chinese herbs. And then I'm like, so this is really interesting. There's Chinese herbs in this broth. Is this Chinese medicine? Right. And, and I'm like, so this is the thing. These are things that we grew up with in our soups, right? Me, um, growing up Vietnamese, most Vietnamese know this practice called gao ya, which is Gua Sha, which I actually mm -hmm. think the word Gua Sha came from Gao Ya, not the other mm. way around. Because gua, Gao Ya in Vietnamese literally means scraping wind, mm. right? Ooh, cool. Yeah, so this is like, an, when Gua Sha is a much different, like it has nothing to do with wind whatsoever, right? So, um, but you know, these things we brought with us, like Vietnamese, you will hear many accounts of them on the boats going into like escape from, um, the fall of Saigon, bringing coins with them. They call them coining, but Gao Ya is like, mm. they're scraping their back to get rid of these fevers, right? Mm. So like this in itself is like, 
you know, when you have these techniques and you can't even practice them, right? Like, what is that about, right? Um, and I don't know if y'all read my PhD dissertation at all. I have not oh. read your PhD. Sorry, dissertation. I didn't have a chance. I didn't. Yeah. Act, did you send it to us? No, I thought okay. y'all. Um, okay, it's called American Chinese Medicine. Um, oh, I would like to read. I would like to read yeah. your PhD dissertation. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, and it's the racial history of Chinese medicine in the United States. Awesome. Um, That's amazing. Send, send it yeah. our way, and we can yes. talk about. Oh wow. Yeah. Well, that's the part two. On that we can have part two. Absolutely. That's part two. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And then I can get your snazzy headphones too. But yeah, yeah like, um, yeah. So that's part two. And, and you can like digest a lot of the things that I write in there. And that's actually how I thought y'all like got a hold of me. Cause rarely do I get like called for interviews when it doesn't relate to my dissertation. So yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll just speak a little bit to that, but I mean, basically, you know, we have kept very, very loosely in touch ever since graduate school yeah. at Zhengdao. And as Lucas and I have been, you know, diving into these conversations, you've just been kind of in the back of my mind as somebody I was like, we should really talk to Tyler. I'm sure he has a really interesting perspective. I don't exactly know what the fuck he's been up to since <laughs> Zhengdao, but I know that it's going to be totally fascinating because, you know, I've like tracked you on Instagram and stuff like that. And so, um, so really it, it, it was just entirely based on the fact that, you know, we had a lot of good conversations in graduate school. Yeah. I know that you're an interesting thinker and practitioner. And I thought it would be fun to rap with you because whatever it is that you're into, I figured it would be the kinds of the kinds of areas of inquiry that this podcast is super interesting. Sure. In mm -hmm. I had a presumption of intersectionality in like unique and novel ways. Okay, so Taryn, you know, I, I listened to y'all's podcast with um, uh, Lucas's brother. Yeah. And throughout all your podcasts, you keep talking about process. Yeah. I'm like, mm -hmm. yo, I'm like, is this dude into like Alfred Whitehead and shit? And then, like, <laughs> sure enough, like, you're like talking about process philosophy of like Alfred White. I'm like, damn. I'm like, okay, we're, we are on the same page now. I, I, I know what you're jiving with right now, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, that kind of like, and that was kind of illuminated in that um, podcast with Lucas's brother, which was really good. I really mm, thought it was thanks. good. Oh, good. Yeah. You liked it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that like, like whitehead, proto Taoist, Taoist kind of like intersection is for, for me, like these days, especially in the way that I'm trying to deepen my understanding of the medicine, both from a, a sort of like philosophical and, and in that case, like both epistemological and ontological orientation, as well as mm. my own work and practice, like I'm, I'm really trying to uh, dive more deeply into both of those currents because they seem so, I don't know, they just seem super alive for me at the well, moment. You might like this one homie named like Yuk mm -hmm. um, uh, His name is Y-U-K and then H-U-I. Mm -hmm. He's a student of Bernard Stiegler. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with Bernard Stiegler. He wrote Techniques in Time, which oh, is sure. this... Yeah, trilogy, um, basically looking at the fall of Prometheus and um, basically the birth of Technics, right? Uh -huh. So um, bringing the ideas of like Gilbert Seaman Dunn, Heidegger, all that shit. Um, and then like he released these um, three book series. Um, and this is the funny thing about Stiegler too. He couldn't actually teach at universities because he was a bank robber. <laughs> um, so like... 
So um, awesome. De- it's funny because Derrida picked him up and mm-hmm. Derrida was like, yo, you should go to my lectures. And he's, and then he attended Derrida's lectures. Right. And then Derrida got him a gig at one of the um, French research institutes, not really a university. Um, and then that kind of launched Stanford University Press to pick up his ideas. Um, sadly, however, Bernard Thieler died last year during COVID mm-hmm. um, in July. We lost a lot of good thinkers. Um, Stiegler was definitely one of them. But like um, Stiegler's protege is Yukwei. And Yukwei writes a lot about Taoism and cosmopolitan techniques and technology. Awesome. I think it's like totally up your jams. You know, um, he's like the burgeoning like philosopher coming out of China right now. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I think you might dig his stuff yeah um, that sounds great yeah but a lot do you of have like, a um, recommendation of a particular book or essay to start with um let's just say a, a birdie can send you a um a pdf Sweet. file of a book yeah we love birdies yeah i i don't know these birdies but allegedly a birdie right. can send you excellent you know, files Fantastic. of this kind of stuff yeah so um yeah I mean, people be like fucking with um chinese medicine ideas and like dallas ideas for a while in continental philosophy right. um some haphazardly like heidegger trying to do that shit but like some people like more in a poignant sense like this one guy named um arun saldana mm-hmm. he wrote this really great book called Psychedel- psychedelizing white mm. it's an ethnography mm-hmm. on like um uh white people in goa mm-hmm. <laughs> like mostly oh. like is israeli tourists but yeah. like why i bring them up is that he, he wrote this really good essay called against yin and yang mm. and it like goes through this like interesting dialogue of like these kind of uh, manufacturings of dichotomies and interpretations of yin and yang and all that kind of stuff right. he's really brilliant um he wrote a really good article called reontologizing um race um, it is amazing. It brings in like actor network theory into the discourse of like um, phenotypical uh, racial categorization. So I think he's like pretty breakthrough, like philosopher thinker too. Um, so yeah. Um, yeah. So as an anthropologist, like one thing I got to ask y'all is like, you know, and this goes with my dissertation and, you know, if you're uncomfortable answering this, but like, as like, white guys white men um in the united states how do y'all position yourself practicing chinese medicine at a, an incredible disadvantage <laughs> incredible disadvantage yeah because i feel like um like we were talking with tyson you know in in uh, trying to understand and get a grasp on uh you know an incredibly in-depth and um how I say like something that's knowledge that's passed down from generation to generation. So it's actually in your DNA in a lot of ways. Um, You know, we have, or I'll speak for myself. Like I don't have any, I mean, (laughs) indigenous medicine or otherwise, I don't have any background in that, you know, I have no grounding in the rooting or in the, um, in my association and my interactions with the natural world, other than being a human being, you know, coming into being at at the present moment. Do you know what I mean? So we're all clean slates when we are born, but, you know, obviously there's a certain amount of, like I said, um, inherited 
understandings or relationality. Um, but, you know, I didn't grow up with anybody saying or anybody like feeding me seasonally or other than like what was available in the market or like, you know, explaining anything about relationalities of the cosmos and how that affects me. And, you know, um, yeah. Uh, so I, <laughs> I look at it as a lot to make up for and just, you know, I just take it as it comes and, and just be humble with myself and like how much depth I can get out of this in my lifetime, you know? Yeah. So <clears throat> for me, it's, it's complex, right? I mean, I grew up in Atlanta in the seventies, um, in a middle upper middle-class family, uh, that were quite religious Jews. And so while on one level, you know, and I don't, this is not something I'm, I'm, I'm going to say all this because of your question. It's not something that I like typically put forth in, in discourse, um, for reasons that I'll also get into a little bit, but, sure. um, you know, there was a, a pretty robust amount of anti-Semitism that was just kind of baked into that context. I mean, it wasn't, you know, compared to some folks I know and things they've experienced, we'll call it relatively minor, but it was definitely part of the, the environment um, consistently. And then, you know, within Judaism, often I would be in a position where as a kid, I was in context where either I was in a more orthodox context mm -hmm. than what my family was in. Um, because of various youth group contexts. So I got a lot of blowback from fellow Jewish kids about yeah. not being Jewish enough, not being mm -hmm. American enough because of my political and philosophical interests. Or I would be in a context where everybody was far less embedded within their tradition. Mm. Um, so I grew up with, you know, a lot of confusion around my own identity in terms of like, I didn't really fit in as a white person exactly. I didn't fit in as a Jewish person exactly. You know, I was like a pretty fucking weird punk rock kid, you know, like reading Robert Anton Wilson at age 14, you know, like, so, you know, taking psychedelics early intentionally, like there was a lot of like ways in which I didn't, I couldn't find a fit generally speaking. And so, didn't feel, you know, yeah, it felt, felt at odds a lot of the times with my own environment. So that sense of not really ever landing somewhere in particular um, was both a catalyst for other areas of inquiry and like lines mm. of discovery. Yeah. Uh, because I also grew up in a family that was very loving, but very distressed. Um, both of my parents were pretty substantially mentally ill. And so while on the outside, everything looked totally copacetic on the inside, it was a very fraught and um, disrupted and chaotic environment. So, you know, in terms of like, you know, from a certain point of view, of course, you can be like, well, dude, your skin is white, you're middle, upper middle class, right? You have a huge amount of privilege, all true. And at the same time, 
true but partial in the sense that um you know i mean i'm sure we're all familiar with the kinds of challenges that growing up in a robustly dysfunctional family can present for anyone sure. um so you know for me the study of other cultural orientations um has been part of trying to understand how humans are the way they are and how they work together or not from a really early age. Yeah. And so, you know, I had prior to studying Chinese medicine, I have a degree from Naropa university in Buddhism, psychology and the yeah. body. Yeah. yeah. And then concurrently with that, I became deeply involved in studying a Brazilian spiritual tradition called the Santo Daime, which was an ayahuasca Gnostic mm. syncretic faith and spent about 20 years in that space, you know, both as a student and eventually as somebody in a leadership role. So this kind of like um, opportunity to be embedded in other orientations, which then eventually gave rise to studying Chinese medicine has been a, a big part of my exploration right throughout my whole life. So I, what I have learned from that, I think, uh, if I can really encapsulate it is, is to do my best to approach that inquiry with a lot of humility um, and a lot of respect for whatever the tradition is and, and do my best at every moment to just um, try to approach the relationship to the work, the lineage, and the practice um, and study uh, as, as openly and with as much kind of a beginner's mind as I can in any given moment. Um, so I don't know that that answers the question, right? But this is just to kind of offer some context that I feel yeah. like to just be like, well. Well, yeah, you know. so this is a very Donald Harawayian kind of situated knowledge question, you know, and like, I mean, you can go into even like Gautamer with like prejudices. I want to see where y'all coming from. And like right. even Heidegger, like his four structures, you know, yeah. I mean, but this is like trying to give me some context where like, y'all even position yourself in that context. And I think that, you know, one of the things that, um, that I write extensively in my dissertation is that um, is, it is a lot of ways an ethnography of uh, where American whiteness, like, um, and in particular, like kind of Orientalism. And, I'm, and it, it, Orientalism is a really tricky thing, right? You know, um, it's not this like people might be quick to the gun and saying, oh, that's Orientalist because you're eating sushi well. And it's just like, like, I don't know, let's say a white person making sushi, you know, and it's like, oh, that's Orientalism. And it's like, okay, there's many different angles of Orientalism, but the, like, the gist of it and the power behind it is actual power control, right? Controlling the narrative, controlling those structures, right? Um, and that's like a lot of what I focused on. And especially, you know, Saeed, when he wrote Orientalism, he specifically wrote it in relationship with Europe and the Middle East, or what we call the Middle East, you know? Um, but in the American context, when you hear Oriental, you don't really hear the Middle East. You think about far the Far East, you know, East right. Asia. 
So, um, and that relationship is very fraught. It's very fraught with a lot of contradictions and paradoxes, but also a lot of elements in which healing can occur, you know? Um, one of the things that I write very extensively is the gaze, you know, how this medicine is like seen and enacted, right? Um, and what's unique, you know, our teacher, Taryn and I's teacher um, in school, he was guilty of this, you know, like he had an orientalist gaze, right? Because I, in my dissertation, I deconstruct a lot of his epistemologies in Zhong Gao, and like they're very parallel with J.R. Worsley's like Five Element, which he created. Like we needed, let, let's be honest here, Five Elements was constructed in the 1950s, right? right. Just as like traditional Chinese medicine, TCM, right? right? So, um, and what I analyzed, and I was telling you all before, before um, and, uh, the other recorded, other recorded thing that um, our teacher, Sean Marshall said to us in the first week of school, I'm gonna teach you everything you know about Chinese medicine in the first week. And what he was discussing was actually the Wuxing and Liu Qi and um, Yin Yang and Sanjiao energetics and whatever have you, but I looked at it, you know, because I, I already had some kind of knowledge of that stuff. But like, um, like, again, I told you, I had to hit a lot of that kind of knowledge. But like, um, what actually I was looking at, you know, even back then was the structure that I can't stick a needle in someone until I finish this school and pass this fucking arbitrary, like, um, exam, right? that's based off of an interpretation of the late 50s cultural revolution standardized medicine, right? That's built on Marxist dialectics, might I add. Byung-jung Lin-chi is like, Byung-jung literally means fucking dialectics, right? So like, you know, and Marxist dialectics at that or Hegelian dialectics, right? So it was interesting for me and probably for Taryn too. I don't know, you went to Tri-State, right, Lucas? I went to PCOM, which is even worse. Oh, you went to PCOM. Oh, yeah. So we are we are the machine. Yeah, I'm not gonna say anything. Uh, I'm not gonna say anything. I can say know. it if you want. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. But you know, so this is the uh, dynamic that we're at. Is that like there's these always it, it, one thing I learned about Chinese medicine in the United States is heterogeneous. Right? There's multiple practices, very like many traditions, and that's the problem. That's the problem is how do you standardize literally hundreds of traditions that have equal empirical weight, but saying that, wow, this is the primary um, epistemology in which Chinese medicine ought to be taught and is taught and enforced by the state to be taught in the United States, right? That's heavily problematic, especially when, and not to like, you know, plug in my dissertation on this one, Go but especially Please. when you have six members of UCLA who actively created the first law prohibiting non-white acupuncturists to practice. And that was the first ever law. It's Wait, AB Pause. Yeah. Pause. Please take it back a couple of steps and, and tell the story of that because yeah. that's okay. the I've ever heard okay. of that. Okay, great, great. So what you have is... Um, I, I write extensively on this in my dissertation, but like you have 
um, James Rustin, he goes to China. Um, at the same time, there's this cohort from UCLA. They're in med school, right? I'm not going to name names. It's in my dissertation. Um, they find this, like, Taiwanese man. Um, first, they learn Tai Chi, and the Tai Chi Chuan teacher, like, knows a little bit of acupuncturist. Then they, like, refer him to this other acupuncturist who is the big, big player in the whole scene who's Taiwanese. He teaches them, like, really, like, hodgepodge acupuncture you know um and then so basically from that james Rustin goes to california well, james Rustin gets treated in china during the nixon envoy the um the first um envoy to china and then automatically this crew says we need to professionalize this and not only to professionalize this we are going to be the arbiters of how this is professionalized they immediately immediately they um met with um uh uh, California congressmen at the time um, to push the initiative, which was AB 1500, to disallow anyone who was not in a university setting, um, which at the time uh, in the early 70s, there were barely any um, Asian Americans practicing medicine, right? Um, let alone like 30 years prior, they weren't even considered fucking um, citizens, right? So like, you have that aspect of it. And these crew, I call the UCLA cohort, jumping on board automatically creating the first law, AB 1500 in 1972. Subsequent from that, Nevada passed their law. Subsequent from that, in that crew, their main teacher goes to Maryland and meets like a whole other crew of, um, I guess you can say, um, Orientalist, you know. Um, and that creates an interesting power play of like knowledge production, cultural production. And then you have what Adorno and Horkheimer calls the culture industry, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And this is all throttled at the helm of like, you know, what I call counterculture orientalism. And this, this allowed. And so y'all hear accounts about Miriam Lee getting arrested. Well, she sure. got arrested because of fucking AB 1500. That's why uh -huh. she got arrested. Right. So from 1972, 1976, well, in from 1972 and 1973 alone, um, 64 acupuncturists were arrested for practicing medicine without a license. From 1910 to 1972, only nine people were ever arrested for practicing acupuncture without like medicine. Right. So that tells you right there the inherent um, marginalization of Asian Americans that is embedded in a fucking profession. Right. It didn't take until 1975 when Jerry Brown, who, um, part one of Jerry Brown, lifted that ban. Right. You know, um, and that created the whole California acupuncture board, you know, right. but that's not to say that's not to say that the UCLA cohort didn't benefit from this, because at the same time, um, you, the California State Assembly wanted people, specifically subject matter experts, to create the fucking curriculum of the profession. Right. Guess where they created the curriculum? They had three hours to create it. One of the homies from um, the East Coast from Maryland School, I won't name names, but you can just figure that out, um, went over, met in a fucking men's bathroom to create the curriculum for acupuncture in the United States. And that same fucking curriculum exists till to this day. And yes, Asian Americans continually be fucking marginalized, right? Where we cannot even practice our fucking medicine. You know, mm -hmm. sorry for swearing a lot, but I'm just saying, oh, like, <laughs> during my ethnography alone, I met 12 Vietnamese elders who couldn't practice. 
who are practicing illegally. I met 18 Chinese practitioners who are practicing without a license, right? So this shows you, because in order to like even get into an acupuncture school, you have to have four years of education at an undergraduate as, um, system, right? These, these folks, you know, and not to mention the high TOEFL score, um, the teaching English foreign language mm-hmm. score, to even get into these fucking schools, which is higher than UCLA, right? right. So mm-hmm. when people say, and, and this is what kind of bothers me, is that there's no fucking racism, right? There's no racism in the medicine. Everything is gravy, you know. Um, I, okay, uh, there's been these debates that are circulating in this um, in the blogosphere or like interwebs. I don't really care about it, Facebook, whatever, about like Oriental, you know. That's the tip of the iceberg. When you're actually engaging in systemic racism, right, and actively trying to like marginalize Asian Americans as we speak, you know? So when I say that Sean Marshall taught me everything to know about Chinese medicine that fucking week, he did because that dude couldn't even practice acupuncture in the state of North Carolina, right? right? So that to me is indicative of the problem, right? So if you want racial equality, you want like inclusiveness, right? Make the medicine accessible, right? And this is the thing. And this is the thing right here. If you all know about the Young Lords and Black Panther Party taking over Lincoln Hospital, and that's where like NADA was um, created and all that shit, right? Mm-hmm. You know, th- this was like at the helm of a subversive activity. Activity Chinese med- acupuncture wasn't even regulated yet in New York, right? So this was prior to regulations in New York because that was 1971, right? Matulu Shakur. Tupac's um, stepdad, right, his father figure, he was one of the first acupuncturists in New York um, in that, in the professionalized context, right? He learned from, this is where Taryn and I have a connection with Matulu Shapur, he learned from Nguyen Van Yee in British, in uh, Montreal and all that stuff, because Nguyen Van Yee was a big player. Y'all have to understand, like, it's really squashed in America, but, like, um, I did an interview with the late um, Giovanni Macioccia before he died for my ethnography, very sweet guy, very like amazing. I told him that there's an American, there's an English version of Ling Shu. Dude like lost his shit. He's like, where can I buy it? Because he was a student of the Nguyen Van Yee too. After he left Van Buren school in England, mm-hmm. him, and, him and Deadman were classmates or they mm-hmm. were like a few years apart, right? right. Like he went to search for Nguyen Van Yee because that Ling Shu that they have at Zhong Dao Right. has like one of the few commentarial link shoes that are like from Mashu, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we, we can get into that whole like genealogy of the link shoe and stuff like that too. But like, um, because prior to um, the eighth century, there's no, there's no link shoe that exists, neither, nor does the Suwen exist prior to the eighth century, you know, because I mean, it was scattered and this guy named um, Wabing, he reformulated the Suwen in the eighth century and then um, kind of restructured it into this like cohesive compendium that we see today, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the Ling Shu wasn't even called the Ling Shu back then. It had three other different names, you know? So, but um, what I'm trying to get at though is that like the beginning onset of this medicine from Miriam Lee, from Matulu Shakur is rooted into like otherness, right? And then it's rooted into accessibility, right? Mm-hmm. 
And then um, I, in my dissertation, I, rock, I write about one of the first like Chinese medicine apothecaries in John Day, Oregon, right? With Doc Hay, right? He had like thousands of dollars of un, um, uncast checks that the community gave him, you know, that they found after he died in the museum, in the Doc Hay Museum, right? Mm -hmm. Or um, on Cham in um, John Day, Oregon, right? So this tells you that this medicine inherently was accessible to the people, right? Not some for like bourgeois, like white people that like in a spa setting. This has revolutionary context, you mm -hmm. know, that's completely been erased, you know? And you start seeing this like kind of um, process of knowledge production to be in this format of exclusion, right? of like whoever can purchase it can have access to it right mm -hmm. you know so i think and this is why in the beginning of my monograph i write that this is an ethnography of rage because what is fueled in me and other people and other practitioners who can't even fucking practice is a rage mm -hmm. and we gotta fucking hustle asian americans one thing that we might have in common is that we gotta hustle you know, because no offense, you white man's laws, it's not conducive to us. You know, we are automatically otherized, you know, and we got to hustle to survive, right? So um, I know that went a little bit, you know, <laughs> in depth into what we're trying to get at, but, you know, um, and this is, and, and subtle things like this, like I, I listened to uh, one of y'all podcasts and, uh, like I say, it's this gaze, right? And I want to ask y'all, like, you know, when someone um, of within the Chinese medicine community, you know, says something like, um, if I was a woman, I would never live in Japan, right? What does that mean to y'all? <laughs> um, yeah. What does it mean to me? It means that uh, the point of view of the person making that statement How do I want to say this? So I find a statement like that um, potentially presumptuously takes me on like a, a, a journey into a particular orientation that it feels like someone has. I can't say because I can't actually occupy their subjective space, right? But yeah. And I, I s experience that as being... Um, an expression of a particular contextual experience that I find very dissonant to my own experience, but at the same mm -hmm. time, I feel like I can understand from a certain point of view. That okay. That's kind of my, my, I'm like, huh, okay. I think I understand where you're coming from. It's not resonant with me. And like that's that's interesting, right? Um, that 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 is something that you feel that that is something that you that is your perspective, and that it's something that you you are sharing in this moment, mm. right? Mm -hmm. That that's kind of my like how it lands, right? Um, I don't know if that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, like initially. Like if you asked me well, 15 years ago, 
well, actually, no, 15 years ago, I was in Japan, but <laughs> um, it, it's, I think thinking about this kind of thing a lot more recently, it feels like a, like a colonialist mentality because it's like you have no, you have no concept of uh, how a culture shapes you hmm. growing up in that culture. And so you coming in with your framework and looking at a culture and saying, you know, oh, this is this inequality here, there's inequality there. It's like, from your perspective, sure. You know, would they all look at the reverse and maybe they're saying like, you guys are crazy, you have way too much freedom and look at you, you're running rampant. You know, everybody's killing each other and everybody wants to, you know, own everybody else's shit or something. Um, so for me, it's like, you know, walk a mile in someone else's shoes before you, you know, think that you understand them in any way you know i don't presume to understand japan in fact after living there for a year but in fact i probably know less um <laughs> because there's so much like i constantly find myself even so many years later like looking back on instances being like oh yeah i messed that up oh yeah i totally misinterpreted that oh i probably should have done this because there's so much complexity um and seemingly to my Western mind, hypocrisy, that uh, it's very difficult to nav to, you know, intelligently navigate the social structure and like mm, get into people's better uh, on people's good sides. Do you know what I mean? Like, because yeah. the, I mean, I'm just going to go specifically talk about J the Japanese example, but, um, you know, they're a hard culture to penetrate in terms of, you know, having the sort of familiarity that you would in a Western culture. And so navigating that, it takes skill from an, from an outsider's um, vantage point. So Lucas, I think have you, have you ever lived in England, man? No. I just got to tell you this. Every single fucking day I was walking on eggshells. And so this is what like, mm. I'm going to say when you say Eastern and Western, I'm mm -hmm. going to say Western and Western, right? Mm. Go to England, right? Brazil, I mean, dude. Brazil. Yeah. Same, oh, yeah. same like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> <laughs> like, totally. Totally. You know, and mm. like, I remember when I, and th this is, you know, we'll get into that comment, but like, this is just an example of the heterogeneity within the West, right? Mm -hmm. Is okay. First day I, or first week, I moved to England um, to pursue my master's in what is now Buddhist studies at um, the School of Oriental and African Studies, SOAS, um, and, um, which was one of the first Buddhist studies. Uh, well, first like Tibetology studies in the, in all of uh, the world. Um, but like uh, the thing was is that. I went to a Whole Foods in Piccadilly Square and then like I bought like a vegan protein like shake thing. And then um, the woman, it, it said 39 quid or 39 pounds. Sorry, everyone in England say quid. They don't really say pounds. But like, um, so, you know, uh, I, I, I purchased it and they, she rings it up. I'm like 39 pounds is a little bit steep, but whatever. 
She rings it up, says 49 quid. I'm like, I'm like, yo, there's a tag that says 39 quid on there. You know what her response was? So are you going to buy it? And that's British customer service, right? <laughs> For the customer, like with, and if you really want to test this, call British Telecom, BT, to really show that the customer is always wrong. Like you will always be wrong in, in England, right? No matter what, you know? And they have all these layers of bureaucracy, the perfect movie in Brazil to like mm. elucidate this, right? We're actually Robert De Niro's character, spoiler alert, Robert De Niro's character is an American that tries to cut the red tape, but he dies because he dies of paper crumbling him, which is the metaphor of bureaucracy killing him, right? Mm -hmm. So, but what I found is almost every single facet of British culture, we're, we share a common language, but we don't at all, right? Like, like when you say, oh, it's like, where's your boot? You know what a boot means in England? Trunk. It means a fucking car trunk. Yeah. You know? Right? Like um, anything, like I remember treating one of my first patients and I said, like, can you roll up your pants? She got fucking pissed at me. She's like, I'm sorry, I'll give you a chance, but you're an American. But pants means what you call undies in the United States. Oh. Right? So, and so, and like culturally, you know, England is heavily into class that you can differentiate class by the way they talk. They have the posh accent, you know, and then they have the working class accent. They fucking hate Americans because they can't understand our class because we hide class through our accent. We don't know, people are in fucking debt, you know? You can have a like big mansion, but be in millions of dollars in debt too. You know, like some people who presided over the country, but that's not the point. The point though being is that, you know, when I'm dissecting and I ask people, what do you mean by Western medicine? What do you mean by Eastern medicine? This is the first question I ask in my Asian medical systems class. They say, oh, well, it's easy. They see the body as like biology and everything like that. But you go to a doctor, you go to a doctor, you know how the fucking doctor sees you or a nurse? They see you by your ICD coding, right? They see you as a code so you can get reimbursed by your fucking insurance company. You know, this assemblage of like disease or whatever is processed to format a coding. So the whole ontological format of a human in sickness is embedded into this um, ontology of a code, right? So like that in itself, of, you know, differentiate from NHS, where it's not based on the coding system, ICD coding system, right? Automatically functions in this different angle, right? So, and that completely, uh, you know, one of my uh, mentors, Anne-Marie Mole, wrote the, body, the book Body Multiple, explaining that she was doing an ethnography of arterial sclerosis and saying that a cardiologist and an oncologist and a PCP are looking at the same body, but it's multiple, right? That they're actually not engaging with the same body right. at all, right? And that's just fucking biomedicine, right? We have Chinese medicine, so many different epistemologies, so many ways of thinking, right? So many ways of doing, right? But it's all sanctioned under one specific epistemology one specific orientation right 
And that's a problem, right? Because like I told you before, from the onset, in the beginning of the regulations of the profession, how the profession was regulated. And by the way, the profession was regulated over one thing, the needle, the fucking needle. That's how this profession was regulated, right? And from there, created this whole medical culture, cultures, because state by state is completely different too, right? right? These, these cultures that have like specific elements of power into it, you know? I didn't know what to call it. I called it orientalized biopower merging Foucault with like Orientalism. Mm -hmm. I don't even think that encapsulated it too well as well, you know, because there's like so many nuances of it. But one thing is, is trying to simplify really complex things. And I think that's right. a fucking danger. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, um, we, and, uh, if you ever invite me again on this uh, podcast, um, <laughs> we can get into American Chinese medicine and like the, um, the child of that is when white people took our medicine, you know, because taking also has two contexts. It's where they sure. take the medicine ingested, but also taking of it. And like I said before, like when I say it's our medicine, I don't mean that it's like we own it. It's like just ownership, but it's our fucking identity. You know, mm. like our ancestors brought it on our boats, right? Like, this is the shit we grew up with. You know, the ointments, the liniments, the coins, mm -hmm. the cups, the, the, the scrapings, the kneelings, the bleedings, all that shit, the herbs, right? That's right. all part of us. So in response to the question I asked y'all, how do I see people that say that if I lived in, if I was a woman, I didn't live in Japan, I say, fuck, that's colonialism. That is neo-colonialism. And that is what this profession was fucking built on, mm. you know? So in the in next month, we're in September, two months from now, I'm doing a talk at an I Am For Us uh, conference on decolonizing medicine. Mm. And, mm. and my, my, my workshop's called In Order For, or for the Medicine to Survive, the Profession Must Burn. Say, say it again. For the profession to survive, the medicine must burn. Or for, for the medicine to survive, Mister. the profession must burn, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean that very explicitly because at the end of the day, and I know... Y'all probably heard about this shit, like the dry dealing stuff. I know North Carolina spent millions of dollars. Very few people spent million dollars. Um, New York, etc. But guess what, y'all? You know, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, what are all these site licenses built on? Is it to know, find that the practitioner knows these like disparate forms of ideas of Chinese medicine? No is to protect the general public. And guess what? You can teach how to protect the general public in fucking two days, literally, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Literally. So you literally have a profession which has the longest master's degree in the United States, right? We're not even gonna talk about the doctorate degree because I think that in itself has no weight, right? Um, but you have that. And they're trying to create more, um, what is it, competency standards for the doctor, right? But how much of it actually deals with safety? And I asked that question, yeah, very little. And I asked that question because the only reason why those fucking state boards exist is to protect the general public. Mm -hmm. Safety. That's it. Yeah, I actually think that is generous. I think that those state boards exist 
because there's a way to make money. Yeah. Right. And there's oh, a well, way. Yeah. Mm. I mean, like, I, I feel like it's entirely, you know, as you're talking about the ICD codes and the NHS, like, I'm like, I'm just, I just keep seeing like bureaucracy. Brazil was a great check on that. I keep seeing Kafka, specifically yeah. the trial, like, and then, you know, at this kind of like where the Venn diagram intersects, you know, there's just like this kind of conflation, which to me is essentially the capitalist uh, singularity of power and, and, you know, money in quotes here, because it's like, it's not just cash, but it's like these kinds of commodification of resource into what gets termed as value, but actually is not about value at all. And so, you know, one of the themes that I feel like I keep hearing in like the, an underlying sort of uh, like pattern kind of theme in everything you're describing is where we started, right? When you were talking about um, the beats and this like incredible dissonant paradoxical, like, yay, the East, I'm not looking at the internment camps. Like that the, this, you know, uh, I'm gonna take it on a, a maybe even stranger, like not Go tangent, ahead. but into the adjacent possible where like, so the constitution of the United States as a magical document that actually is like, has cast a spell that is the culture that we're living in, Magic. which, you know, yeah. the actual parameters of that spell are all of these dynamics that we're talking about. And they were all laid out when that document was written. And we're like, you know, I, I'm not going to say that I truly believe in destiny, but there's this like, we're in this simulation, right? Where the rule set is bounded. And so to say something that will truly piss a lot of people off, I might offer that for the country to ever actually be a place that is truly civilized, right? That the constitution has to burn which is not to say that the fundamental principles that it was based on, not how it was written and not the mindset of the people that wrote it, right? But the idea truly, if these things were, were actually the principles of you know, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness, not how that got distilled into who got to act or, or be acted upon by those dynamics. But if, like, if that's really what it's about, which of course we can question that, but like, let's say it is, <laughs> then the only way that that can come to being is if we write a new spell <laughs> that is not inherently encoded to be something that makes it impossible for any of those three things to exist for anyone. Because let's be clear, right? Even for the white male landholder, they don't have, they might have life, maybe. They certainly don't really have liberty, even if they have more space to do what they think they want to do. Ain't nobody happy right, on, on a sort of societal level, right? There's plenty of individual people that are happy living their life, but, you know, to kind of like check the bodhisattva vow, it's like, if there's anybody suffering, everybody's suffering. You like, you can't be taken liberation if there's any sentient being that is in pain or yeah. suffering, pain. Let's right. decouple those two. So I don't know. I mean, this, this, this gets a little bit into the the ethers on this one, right? But I feel like it's somehow very, for me, very present in this whole conversation is that, you know, the profession is like, how could it be anything else in this nation based on what we have 
built for ourselves to live in. Absolutely. And that's what one of the things that I was, was arguing and saying that like, you know, it's not an aberration to see that people are being marginalized or people that like overt racism towards like people of color. That's not an aberration. That's the fucking foundations of this country. Right. Mm -hmm. You people need to realize that, you know, it's an aberration to fight for that. Right. To fight for the equality of all peoples. When they say it's all power to people, that's one of the most subversive things. Right. Fred Hampton was not killed because he he organized all these black people together. He organized black people, Latino people, American Indians and fucking poor white people together. Right. He created a rainbow coalition. Right. And that's what fucking pissed off J. Edgar Hoover. Right. So this is, you know, when I say, I tell people when we were fighting for liberation, when we were fighting for equality, it's an aberration to what America was founded on, right? Because America was founded on rich fucking white people who didn't want to fucking pay taxes, right? Let's put mm-hmm. it really fucking simple, right? Yeah. Yeah. So like, and, and not women, I said white men, <laughs> right? white women, right? right? Let's be clear. You know? So, and this replication of the profession, well, the profession is replicating the same dynamics, you know, mm-hmm. and they can talk about how inclusive, how they want to get rid of the word oriental and all that shit, but the structural mechanisms are still in place, right? You look at all these regulatory organizations, there are mostly white people in control of them, right? The directors of it, right? And, and you, you even look at the schools, especially in the East Coast, are all controlled, directed by white people, right? So when I say, when the white people took our medicine, where we can't even fucking practice it, that was helmed in the first fucking week when I was at Jonestown. Right. You know, because what's one thing they say? Remember, don't tell anyone that you're needling people because you're not licensed, right? What does that actually mean? That's the whole power structure that's in place, right? That's the whole mechanism of like ingrained in white supremacy, ingrained into structural racism, right? That has not changed and will not change until the fucking profession burns, you mm. know, or at least deregulated, right? So, um, and, and it's not that hard. I write in my last chapter of my monograph how you can easily deregulate the whole thing. All I gotta say is that you look at like how the FDA um, uh, um, categorizes the syringe needle, and then you, then you see how it's categorized with the acupuncture needle, both for class two medical devices, but there's a subsection for an acupuncture needle or only the licensed practitioner can use it, right? Mm. Well, hypodermic needle, as we can see, you know, for many different angles, you got um, physician assistants, doctors, nurses, um, phlebotomists, um, people who use, right? These are all elements to have access to the hypodermic needle. But that's the thing. And we were taught even in schools that hypodermic needle is less safe than acupuncture needle, right? We're taught that, right? Sure. How small are acupuncture needles? None of them can fit in one inside of the fucking hypodermic needle. But how come we can't even let anyone practice it then? How anyone who is not licensed will get either like fined or sent to prison? Right. Right. So let me ask a, a, an adjacent question to that. Sure. So I, th- I I feel like I totally um, I don't have any questions about in terms of people that are within a lineage context or an apprenticeship context or learned in another country cultural context Hmm. but in terms of if we deregulate um for people that are not coming from those scholastic or cultural contexts Hmm. 
what would be your suggestion for how those folks get trained? Like, are we talking guild? Are we talking like what? Because I, what I don't think would be useful for anyone is just a total free for all, right? Um, both in terms of public safety and in terms of like the reputability of the medicine. Mm -hmm. So what, what do you have thoughts on that aspect of it? So I'm gonna give you a parallel example. Maybe this will help you answer it. Sure. In this country called United Kingdom, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but um, it. United Kingdom does not have any laws for acupuncture. Okay. In mm -hmm. fact, um, because they don't have any laws of acupuncture, basically anyone can practice it. There is a registry if you want to be covered by um, uh, NHS. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, is that there are no laws. And because there's no laws, they have a shitload more clinical trials than in the United States. Mm. And when I mean a shitload, I mean University College London, my school, mm -hmm. um, University of Southampton, um, that's George Lewis School, um, University of Westminster, that's Volker Scheid School, um, and uh, University of Leeds, that was the late Hugh McPherson School, all conducted huge, huge clinical trials where the principal investigator can needle people, right? So we talk about advancements. We see all this shit about like um, doctorates and all this stuff going into clinical medicine. Well, guess what? Until it's deregulated, you will have nothing near close to the clinical trials, nor the accessibility of clinical trials until it's deregulated. Mm. Okay. Another example, you know, so safety. Okay. Safety is an issue, you know. Um, there's many mechanisms in place to do that, right? Um, the, and the, but before we get into that, I want to, you know, really illuminate here that the profession, we, we need to really decouple the profession and the illusion of what the medicine is and what we're taught and what we think is essential. And then we got a question, how much of it actually relates to safety? Okay. Okay. So then we go through that and then we see all this spats again, the physical therapists and chiropractors mm -hmm. practicing dry needling and they teach about safety in two fucking days in a weekend. Right. Right. I don't have the answer, but I can tell you this physical therapists and chiropractors, they're doing very aggressive techniques in acupuncture, but they're actually teaching safety techniques in a fucking weekend. Right. Right. And for those who are hating on me for saying this, and a lot of acupuncturists will, because, you know, it's a part of the cultural industry that is embedded ideologically. You know, they don't even know it, like what Zizek says, they don't know it, but they're doing it, right? Or what Marx defines as um, exchange value, even though Zizek says it's ideology. But, you know, like that's the thing, the element of it is they don't know it, but they're participating into an ideological front, right? that they don't critique like, okay, safety. Well, chiropractors and physical therapists aren't safe because there's recorded cases of them creating normal thoraxes. Well, that's the fucking thing because they're actually recording it. How many acupuncturists you fucking know know how to record an AE or an SAE? You all know what that is? That's a severe adverse events or an adverse event recording. None of us fucking know how to do that. So at least those motherfuckers know how to do that heard on all that yeah. and i i'm not so much um i mean i appreciate appreciate it too i i'm not so much asking about the safety aspect because yeah, we're yeah. on the same page with that yeah i'm more curious 
about so let me think of how the best way to ask this um I don't, I don't think that regulation is a necessity for good medicine, but what I'm wondering is what your thoughts are on the, on sort of like the best general pedagogical, um, principles, the best orientation or best practices, at least of that for, you know, so right now the educational system is geared towards primarily teaching to the boards, right? So let's say that leaves the equation so then what are some ways that we might reorient that process and at the same time have some level of standard not standardization but standard for Mm. a certain level of competency in whatever Mm. your particular orientation to and i actually like to use the plural the medicines right the traditional east asian medicines like so great you want to study thai medicine awesome how do we instead of somebody just like trying to make money off of a for-profit educational process like sure what do we what do we do with that piece less about you know i'm more concerned with in terms of like folks that are really dedicated to their craft that want to know that they can go to a school if there's no longer going to be an accreditation board which i recognize has its problems but like what are what are the ways that we might be able to support a high quality of training that is going to put people in a position where they're apt to be able to with whatever they get out of their program Mm -hmm. to really start doing some good and develop a enough of an understanding that they can really dive into their learning. Cause as we know, graduate school, like whatever, it gets you to the sure. point where maybe you can get started. Sure. So I'm going to tell you how I feel. Yeah, is, I don't, I'm not into universalizing and shit, but I think one thing that the profession lacks incredibly is patient informed care and trauma informed mm-hmm. care. Um, in my ethnographic field work alone i saw fucking three cases of sexual assault at the schools three out of the 12 schools i went to so i think people should learn how to fucking respect their patients and respect like women um and respect fucking boundaries you know um i think that ought to be like um compulsory you know I think that people should also have to like maintain that competency of Mm -hmm. fucking respecting their patients, you Mm -hmm. know, Mm -hmm. because if that's what angle we're going to go through, you know, the medicalization of acupuncture, then at least we should adhere to, I don't know, treating your patients with fucking respect, you know, because if you look at the cases of why acupuncturists lose their license, a lot of times it's because of sexual assault, Mm. you know, Um, and especially, you know, um, that the profession is exponentially white and exponentially women, you know, mm. that it should be, you know, um, homed into the needs of female patients, you know, trans patients, you know, that kind of sensitivity, you know, um, and looking at all the angles that entail um, trauma-informed care, mm-hmm. you know, because that, that shit's necessary, you know, at the baseline, if we're going to be above the rest of these professions, why not be above them? 
and start like have as a baseline, okay, this is how we treat respectfully our patients. And not only that, how we respect the cultures in which this medicine comes from. You know, I'm not asking for people to take a history test or any shit like that. I'm just asking, you know, like that bigotry, um, racism should not be tolerated. That colonialist mindset, which to me is bigoted and racist, should not be tolerated, right? Mm -hmm. But you go to these um, uh, these uh, acupuncturists on Facebook and shit like that, and it's riddled with bigotry. It's mm. filth. It's filth. And it and it's usually people, you know, white men, believing that they're the arbiters of this profession. And they might be. That's what the profession is, but not this medicine. Right. Tell you that much. Because out of all those white men, a lot of them will say, "Oh, I'm an adoptive child." this one Chinese teacher who adopted me into their family and uh, solely entrusted me to pass on this medicine, right? I mean, that in itself is riddled with Orientalism and like racial superiority because they believe this fucking medicine's dying. This medicine's not dying, I'll tell you that much. Chinese medicine ain't dying, you know? It's, it's nowhere near extinction, right? But they believe that there are these like, white saviors but to answer your question more specifically i'll say you know trauma-informed care definitely you know um and that should be kept up every year you know like i'm a professor and i have to abide by title nine policy right um sexual harassment um uh, uh compliance right mm -hmm. um you know so i think that in a baseline if there were to be any kind of implementation in my utopian view, I think there should be a registry um, and just like show that they enroll into a weekend course um, that entails safety, but not just like sticking needles in people, but how to fucking treat patients with respect. Mm -hmm. and that's it. Right. That's doing more than what they're doing in England. You know what I mean? So like, you know, but who am I to say I'm not, I'm not a policy person. I'm, I'm not, um, you know, pol public health policy person. So like, you know, that's not my angle. I'm a medical anthropologist, you know, right. mm -hmm. but I know one thing, practitioners are hurting. Practitioners are hurting because they're in debt because of acupuncture school, right? More than 50% of the students are in student debt, student loan debt. Um, mm -hmm. uh, when Barry Obama was president, you know what happened? Um, many of these schools, these big time schools, won't name names, but they were on the Department of Education's um, hit list, yeah, I won't say anything, <laughs> hit list for gainful employment that they didn't meet the standards for gainful employment, right? Right. right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, that in itself is showing you that there's a problem, that people are paying an exorbitant amount of money, let alone access to these schools, mm -hmm. you know, what, not even 1% of, of practitioners are black, right? right. Why? Mm -hmm. There's a specific reason why that is, you know, socioeconomics, that's the fucking reason why it is, you know? Um, but then you get in place like all these other criteria to le learn these like disparate, you know, sometimes arbitrary ways of thinking of medicine, right? And I, I don't want to disqualify what people believe of what medicine is. That's not my place. But I'm just saying like, you know, all these systems. And if you read my dissertation, I like genealogically traced a lot of these systems, right? Um, and how they were constructed. But what I'm trying to get at is that like, you know, these things are rooted into what is actually as what my advisor for my PhD dissertation said, it's a house of cards, right? It's a, 
is it's like this house of imperial palace of this medicine that is so sanctified and 5,000 years old. Y'all are here to 5,000 year old shit, right? Mm-hmm. It's not 5,000 years old. I mean, Huang Di, Huang Di himself is a fucking mythological person. You ask any sinologist, Chinese studies, um, historian, Huang Di is a mythological person, right? I just told you before, like, you know, the Suwen and uh, Lin Shu and the Neijing in itself, like the oldest remnants we have of it is from the eighth century, right? So like, you know, when we dissect all these things and we actually look at the medicine that is this living, breathing thing, not this like ahistorical, mystified, like exotic thing, when we can start like tearing down that fucking wall, then we can realize, okay, well, what is essential to this medicine? Like to any medicine, patience. Patient be, should be for, first and foremost. If not, if the patient's not centered, then you might as well take a fucking Chinese studies class, right? If this should be just fucking taught in the humanities, right? If that's what you're in for, right? Let's be honest here, you know? But what we do in that at the end of the day is we're treating people, you know? So at the very least, we should treat them with respect. And we should treat them with the respect they earn, you know? That it's our... It's our privilege to be treating them. You know, they're paying us. They're helping us survive at the end of the day. They're paying our bills. They're the everything. That's the thing. The profession doesn't see them as the everything. And that's where I think a lot of things go wrong, you know. And I, and I don't want to, you know, for me, it kind of is like triggering when people say, oh, well, that's just how all medicine is. Well, stop conflating shit. No, it's not how all medicine is. Because this has a specific genealogy from the 1970s. It was created specifically by a set of people, right? They made these laws and regulations that we see today. We were just inculcated from the beginning to believe, well, this is how it always was. Oh, okay. Now I, I was like, I kind of think that is how all medicine is, but now I see what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And what I, what I thought you meant and what was triggering is not what you're saying. Cause I'm thinking like, well, yeah, dude, in my experience, that's how medicine is practiced in this country, which you are actually saying that, but you're also saying that this medicine, right. Which has its own lineage and space, right. When it was brought into the United States and then these laws were formed, those laws came out of this other medical structure. Right. So of mm-hmm. course, it is how all medicine is practiced, but not, right? But again, as a profession. So then we yeah. can mm-hmm. take mm-hmm. this and like, it could have come in in a different way. It didn't yeah. because of the history that you're bringing right. there in this conversation. Well, and I'm just going to say this. If anyone ever tells you that like, well, here's the one thing that it's one of the few instances where religion is conflated with medicine in so much so that the California Acupuncture Board is literally testing you on what forms of chi is the incorrect or correct analysis for a specific syndrome. Just think about that. Chi, right? Liver chi stagnation. If you say like someone says, oh, I don't know, this is completely hypothetical. Um, someone has like hypochondriatic pain, et cetera, blah, 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 list of symptoms. And you put liver chi stagnation liver, or, or you put liver blood stagnation instead of liver chi stagnation, Oh, you're wrong. And the California Acupuncture Board, who are members of the California State Assembly, who are government paid workers, are determining what forms of chi is incorrect and correct. Think about that. You want to talk about conflation of religion, right? Religion and like politics, there you go, right? 
So that's an angle in itself. And I'm not trying to disqualify chi. Chi to me is like a, uh, personally is a floating signifier, right? Has multiple different meanings, context, whatever. We can get into that in another talk. But what I'm trying to get at is that the operative of controlling what is legitimate and illegitimate chi or shen is fucking hilarious to me, right? It's not empirically based, you know? Mm -hmm. There's no mm -hmm. blind to see, oh, well that's like, from this meta-analysis of like 6,000 patients with a p-value of four saying, well, that's liver chi stagnation and that's liver blood stagnation, right? That shit don't exist, you know? Come on, right? So this is what I'm trying to get at. This is what I'm trying to get at is that you actually have it embedded in the fucking state power. Right. And that's the problem. Mm. That's one of the many problems, you know? Um, yeah, wow. It's already been a while from us talking. And, um, is, I, you know, I know I'm going to piss off a lot of people. I, I'm blacklisted for a lot of um, different organizations and shit. That's fine. You know, I, I'm, that's why I call myself a retiring acupuncturist. <laughs> like, um, In the process like, of retiring, right? present tense, present continuous. Yeah, <laughs> yeah because like, um, it like broke my heart, man. Like when I was like researching all this, it really broke my heart. Mm. I would have days like I was in like melancholia for a year straight mm. up. Like I would just cry. And like, you know, I, I interviewed Mike Smith. He's the founder of NADA, like right before he died. It's so weird. Like after I, my field work, G, I interviewed Giovanni Macioccia. He died. Um, Mike Smith, he passed away. Bob Duggan, he passed away. Um, Richard Tan, he passed away like all within like a year of my research. And I like, I like locked out to interview all these people, you know, but what Mike Smith, Mike Smith was like a really humble and it, it makes me like kind of emotional right now just thinking about like what he entrusted in me. Mm -hmm. Cause I remember sitting or sitting interviewing him in his Harlem, Harlem apartment. And uh, he had nothing in his house. You know, literally like a futon and then a desk and it's like stack of hundred dollar bills. And then he said to me, he's like, he grabbed the stack. He's like, here, Tyler, you want some? I'm like, I'm like, no, man. I'm like, I'm good. Like, that's not my place. He's like, he's like, I'm entrusting you because this is my last few months on this earth that I'm entrusting you to tear this shit down. He didn't say tear this shit down. These days, like to really deregulate the profession mm -hmm. and carry on my legacy to all power of the people and to make this accessible to all people, you know? And I'm just like, oh, no pressure, right? <laughs> yeah. But like, he literally entrusted me to do this, you know? Um, and even to this day, like I remember like sitting there with him and like the struggles that he had to go through and how much he was getting ignored in a profession when he was one of the first like like people of the profession, right? He created Nada, you know, and the legacy of what he did, you know, and the constant battles that not even Nada sticking fucking five needles in someone's ear on both ears still entails to this day, right? If you like, if you like just cut all the bullshit on what we're doing, not this orientalist shit, de like exotifying, what are we doing? We are literally sticking needles in people in the acupuncture context. 
But mm-hmm. then, you know, herbs is completely covered in different things. The 1994 Dietary Supplements Act, when, you know, Mel Gibson had that commercial, came in, uh, the SWAT team raids its house, like it's only on vitamins, right? But that has power in itself, right? You know, mm-hmm. um, that's where the government can't touch it. But we're the only profession where technically I cannot practice herbs and I will be arrested if I practice herbs, but my son can. Because I'm licensed as an acupuncturist, not as an oriental medicine practitioner. So like that in itself has this huge like cash 22 and like in itself is in this like kind of gray area, you know? But this is what I'm trying to get at is that like, not just me, and I'm not saying I'm speaking for people, but I see the duress of all these practitioners who have been arrested, who are in hiding, mm-hmm. right? Who are constantly on the fringes. And guess what? They're not white, you know? And they've been, uh, they've been tending to their communities for decades, for decades, and they can't practice, mm-hmm. you know? That should break everyone's heart. And especially with the rise of AAPI shit, you know, that our elders who brought this fucking medicine over can't practice their own medicine. That fucking should break everyone's heart, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's where it is a part of our identity, you know? And that like exponentially, demographically, we're a minority. Asians are a minority in, oh, shall I say, Orientals are a minority in Oriental medicine, right? <laughs> what does that tell you? Mm-hmm. That in itself on its face value should like, just said, okay, looking at demographic, even being modest with the JTA, um, NCCAOM's JTA said 67%. Oh my God. I, I researched much more than that is white, mm. right? Majority is women, you know? That should tell you numbers about, when you look at it, it's like, what kind of inequality is happening here, you know? So, and again, um, so the remedy of this situation a little bit from what Tara was talking about, um, another parallel example is like yoga, right? Mm-hmm. Like yoga has multitude of schools. I mean, Yoga Alliance try to push their credentialing system, but now I'm seeing like other studios having their own credentialing system. But you know, one thing that I find imp- that should be imperative to all this is like, you know, sexual harassment. I mean, like if we're gonna be yeah. honest here, you know, you see like Bikram with all this shit, you know, Patabi Joyce when he was live, all that shit. You know, all these kind of like gurus, you know, they need to be trained in like um, consent, right? Like that, that to me should be apparent. Mm -hmm. But that's the, uh, and what I learned throughout this whole project of my ethnographic computer work of Chinese medicine in the United States is there's a logic of Chinese medicine and acupuncture in this country. Mm -hmm. But the thing that I have to fit in that logic is it is the most illogical possibility right and i I don't know like i don't want to get into this debate with y'all but like i have my vaccination you know i have my moderna you know fine i'm not dead yet um i don't know if i'm sterile or not whatever you know but like (laughs) i don't really give a fuck i already have a son but like the thing is is that and you know that's not to say anything either but i'm just saying that like in the blog in the webosphere our profession is like is extremely known to have anti-vaccine sentiment right mm. you know so that shows you the epistemological framework that it's done as well you know um i don't want to stir up controversy with that but i'm just saying that like you know it's this kind of weird bifurcation 
um, the profession wants to be like accepted. It wants to be like, you know, um, a part of the medical system and the establishment. But at the same time, you know, it's gotta be canonical or classical Chinese medicine. And it's like this weird bifurcation where it's like actually nowadays, you know, the, um, this, the pyramid for um, clinical trials, the efficacy of a clinical trial that like meta-analysis is like the very standard and like, you know, anecdotes are like at, at the very bottom, you know, but like the highest possible is meta-analysis than like blind, um, double blind um, clinical trial. But with Chinese medicine and acupuncture, it's flipped upside down. Where you have like, oh, it's said in the Shanghai Moon or it's said in um, the uh, Wei Bing school that, that this is what disease is. And then you follow that instead of like, you know, looking at clinical trials and seeing the efficacy of points and formulas and et cetera, right? Which is unique, it's unique in itself, but that, that kind of epistemology and how that format is really like very specific to our medicine. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and it really, you know, and when I say religion, you know, and the, the term religion itself was constructed in the 18th century, but like, if you look at like what is practiced, we're, when you're an acupuncturist, you're on this cusp of like metaphysics and, and like medicine at all times. And there's mm -hmm. no problem with that, right? But the problem of it is it's fucking professionalized. So there is a problem of that, mm -hmm. right? You know, so like, uh, I think what's impeding it is its professionalization. You know, what's impeding its potential is its professionalization. It's always been in, impeding its, its potential, you know? And I, I will always go back to the case study of England, you know? Um, because I did my PhD there and not only that, it had so many clinical trials because people had access to it. If you're gonna do a clinical trial in America, you have to hire an acupuncturist to, mm -hmm. and, and take them away from their mostly private setting, you know, private practice, so that you can work in a clinic or like try to integrate it into their, it takes all this logistical, it's a fucking logistical nightmare. Mm -hmm. But in England, you just have a principal investigator, needle the person. See how much red tape was just cut? And this is from England, the fucking country that's like filled with red tape too. You know what I mean? <laughs> but like, you know, like they actually got, are onto something here, you know? Mm -hmm. And if there's an adverse event, ha event happens during one of the clinical trials, they record it, mm -hmm. you know? You know, I, I think uh, this is one of the things, and I'm not going to name names or organizations, but, you know, it should be alarming to see that the ethics class in these schools is taught by a malpractice insurance salesperson. Mm. Y'all don't know what I'm talking about, but there are listeners here that know what I'm talking about. You're not in the uh, West Coast, Taryn. Um, where, did you go to PCOM East Coast or West Coast? Lucas? East Coast. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's all I got to say. That the ethics course is taught by a malpractice um, insurance salesperson, not an acupuncturist. Mm -hmm. That's all I got to say. Right. So when it comes down, down to it, you know, in my ideal situation, I want patients to be safe. Bottom line. And I think we can actually have an integrative medicine where all professions besides acupuncturists can unite together to actually change the FDA coding or classification of the acupuncture needle. And I think that's a big start. 
Like, okay. Um, yeah, because that's the whole profession is based on, right? Right. I was just going to yeah. ask you if you think it, if you actually think that this is a, a something that is possible, even because of the way that our profession seems to be edging towards this like first professional doctoral degree and yeah yeah more than so likely just, to teach you'll have to have the doctorate and blah 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 so, so if we want to talk about that you know those practices of conforming to a specific epistemology a specific way of doing something for a profession actually is um um it's how can i say this legally it's um it's against the Sherman Act of anti-competitiveness and it actually breaks a lot of antitrust laws, right? Um, yesterday, there were a few um, people, I included, that had like technical difficulties. I guess this is an ongoing thing with technical difficulties. <laughs> they actually investigate um, by the FTC, um, the, for the FTC to investigate the NCCAOM because of anti-competitive practices. And it's not just me. Right. There's dozens of other people who are arguing for the same thing, because how can that, and this is what we've been arguing the whole time and talking about the whole time, how can for the practice of acupuncture, you have to learn one specific epistemology and be tested on that specific tradition in itself that was created in 1958. How come that's the standard, right? When we know, when all, any acupuncturist will tell you, there's Japanese acupuncture, Korean acupuncture, not just Japanese, but the heterogeneous like traditions of Japanese acupuncture, heterogeneous um, practices of the Korean acupuncture, right? Um, Vietnamese acupuncture, even Soa Rigpa, Tibetan medicine, right? Mm -hmm. Can they can't practice because they're using needles as well, start up, right? The right. golden needle, yep. they can't practice their form of acupuncture. How come that a medicine that was created in 1958 and not even that medicine, the interpretation of that medicine becomes the gold standard. Mm -hmm. And then if you don't conform to that, then you can't practice. That, my friends, is against the Sherman Act. That is actual practices of anti-competitiveness mm. in the corporate world. So, yeah, if for anyone hearing this, especially in the FTC, investigate the regulatory organizations of acupuncture in the United States, and you will see a litany of malpractice of like completely ethical violations left and right. Yeah, so yeah, let's get into them, you know, mm. if people want to. Yeah, because it's never been investigated, you know? The FTC's never been investigated it. Like not even like, and not to mention the collusion of tuition prices too. We're not even gonna get into that, right? Yeah. But yeah, FTC, if you hear me, there's a whole bunch of regulatory organizations out there that maybe you should probably investigate, right? Mm. There so, you go. We could clearly keep keep rolling. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to be respectful of your time, even though I know you have a, a spacious day today. And I want to be respectful of the fact that we have just uh, given folks a little bit of an opportunity to drink through the fire hose here on <laughs> yeah. super interesting and super important mm. dynamics within the profession and within the medicine, right? And so I want to put a pin in it but what I want to ask you before we do that is you know are there any immediate kind of like closing for now sort of thoughts that you want to offer questions you want to leave folks with to consider um before we we hit the 
put the pin in, put the pause, hit the pause button on, on part one of what I think will be an ongoing conversation. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's the name of the last chapter of my monograph. For this medicine to survive, the profession must burn. That's what I'll end with. Heard. Heard. Thank you all very much. Thank you. A great experience um, and a great platform to have. Um, Yeah. So let's absolutely do it again. I know that it sounds mm-hmm. like you're tied up until October, but we'll off off the mic, figure out a time and put something on the schedule so we can yeah. have a chance to look at your dissertation and dig into that some when we talk next. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Thank you all very much. Thanks, Tyler. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. It's been awesome. Mm-hmm.